You are listening to The World Stage, a global politics podcast from the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, NUPI. My name is Ole Jakob Sending, and I'm a research professor here at NUPI and heading up our new center on geopolitics. Now, the term geopolitics is everywhere these days. In the broadest sense, it refers to the increased competition or, or even rivalry between great powers. But what is the dynamics that drives this increased rivalry between great powers? What strategies are being used and with what consequences? To explore these questions, I have invited Dan Nixon, who's professor at Georgetown University. Dan is uniquely positioned to talk about these issues as he's been working on different dimensions of great power politics for a long time. He authored an award-winning book about a decade ago on power politics in early modern Europe, and he has published a string of articles in top-ranked journals about US foreign policy and the conditions for US hegemony. More recently, he published, together with Alex Cooley, a book titled Exit from Hegemony, which offers a novel take on great power politics, which I think is of great value in trying to unpack what's going on. So welcome, Dan Exen. Well, thanks very much for having me. To get us started, could you describe for us the, the main argument that you make in the book Exit from Hegemony and how that helps us understand the dynamics that we are now uh, witnessing? The punchline of Exit from Hegemony, uh, which... I think is less controversial now than it was when we initially wrote the book, uh, is that the era of U.S. global dominance or the kind of global hegemonic dominance that we saw in the 1990s is over. It's been over for quite some time, and it's not coming back. Uh, and what then the book does is it takes the problem of power transitions, that is, conditions under which uh, we see international politics, the uh, rise of some countries, uh, their increasing capabilities, uh, and the relative, not absolute decline, but the relative decline of other countries. Uh, so think about China's uh, purchasing power parity, GDP, overtaking that of the United States. That's a power transition uh, in the lingo of the my field. Mm -hmm. uh, in unpacking kind of what, what actually happens during those power transitions that uh, produces transformations in international order, or more particularly in the context of what I think you are, you know, the, the center is about what produce, why, what, what forms the nature of competition uh, that takes place during those transitions looks like. So how power transitions affect the terms of geopolitical competition. Uh, and I think the basic way to understand what's happening now, what uh, n the rise of China, the rise of Asia in general, mm -hmm. Russian reassertiveness, uh, rise of India, uh, diffusion of power more globally than we certainly saw in the 1990s and early 2000s. The fundamental way to understand that is to go back to the 1990s and think about what the situation looked like uh, if you wanted to talk about broadly speaking, processes of the construction and maintenance of international order. Uh, so in the 1990s, if you were a country that wanted development assistance or credible security guarantees, that is, security guarantees from somebody who was somebody who was the top of the, you know, 
let me rephrase this. If you wanted security guarantees from the only countries that could give you credible security guarantees, because the only countries that could guarantee that they were likely to win in a conventional conflict, mm -hmm. uh, there weren't very many options. Uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you were basically left with the United States and some of its allies, you know, roughly the G7 countries, the Western democracies, whatever you want to call them, United States, Germany, France, UK, uh, Japan. You could maybe, you know, by the mid-1990s, you could say the EU mm -hmm. uh, as one of these, one of these groupings. Uh, and they had what we describe as a quasi-monopoly on the provision of international club and private goods, uh, meaning that, uh, yeah, they were the only people really in town. There were other, if you wanted these sorts of goodies, if you wanted good trade agreements, development assistance, et cetera. So they were able to, as long as they saw roughly eye to eye, they were able to set the terms for everybody. Okay, so the, mm. so when you talk about goods, mm. that's a different term for security mm -hmm. guarantees. Yeah. So a, the, the provision, so the production provision of certain goods that can be market access, it can be development assistance, it can be security guarantees, mm. basically. Yeah. Goods are kind of anything that is a good. Yeah. <laughs> that it, uh, and we could be talking about consumption goods uh, in the, if you're, you know, these are all economic analogies. So we could talk about consumption goods or assets in some cases. Right. Uh, But does that mean that, so the argument then is you're, uh, you're viewing international politics or power political competition and the transition involved as kind of a, a marketplace where there is a change in who is providing what goods to whom. Is that a way of characterizing it? Sure. I mean, because the fundamental argument, and this is not original to us at all, I know. is the idea that you're moving from a quasi-monopoly environment when there's a cartel that's basically, you know, a Western liberal democratic cartel that is setting the terms yeah. for economic development, setting the terms for trade, setting the terms for financial capital flows, setting the terms for security uh, provisions, security guarantees, uh, arms sales, et cetera. You know, not, not certainly not the only people doing that. There are always other actors, and not always seeing eye to eye, but generally speaking, on similar pages. Uh, for example, that if you want to get development aid, you should uh, reduce corruption, increase transparency. You should cut back on social service provision to get IMF loans. You do structural adjustment. Uh, and one of the big findings. So this is broadly speaking, a lot of what I'm talking about now is aid conditionality. But security guarantees also come with conditions, implicit or explicit. Uh, and one of the big findings in international relations was that for a very long time, we looked at conditions that were attached to, say, aid. Uh, and we thought, well, they didn't work very well. There was no, you know, countries just didn't really follow the conditions. Uh, and in part because the people who were giving that assistance never really triggered the conditions. They didn't tend to scrap the aid if the, if the recipients weren't doing what they wanted. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the 1990s, that started to change. We actually found that conditionality was effective. And not only was conditionality effective, but uh, the countries that were supplying these kinds of international goods were slapping on a lot more conditions than they used to. So the sheer number of conditions associated with trade agreements or with development assistance or with basing agreements or whatever, those were going up probably because they were effective. 
Um, and the reason why they were had not been effective in the 70s and the 80s or the 60s, and they were effective in the 90s, was that in the 70s and 80s, we had a different marketplace. We had a marketplace that was had two major centers of prov provision for goods. It actually had more, but we can think about it as the Soviet Union and the United States. And if the and if you were a client of the United States and you were getting these kinds of goodies from the United States, uh, in some cases you could threaten to go to the Soviets if uh, the U.S. tried to tell you, you know, push you around too much. Uh, in other cases, you could say, well, it's not that we're going to go to the Soviets, but if you push us to cut back social spending, we're going to have uprisings and instability, and that will pave the way for a communist regime, and you can't let that happen. Uh, and sometimes, in fact, the United States is, you know, stepping, you know, and Soviet Union are maintaining their their control over countries hierarchically. You know, they're, they're actually stepping in and doing things like orchestrating coups, invading countries to keep them from being able to exit and go elsewhere, mm -hmm. whether through either of these mechanisms, uh, you know, the existing regime deciding to take its toys and go to somebody else, or uh, a regime transition, a takeover resulting from unpopularity of policies that the client state was pursuing. And one way you can prevent that kind of exit is you can lock countries down, you can turn them into quasi-imperial uh, uh, segments, you know. So does that mean that many of the relations that the the U.S. developed with its allies were quasi-imperial? Well, and that's, likewise with the Soviet Union. I mean, this is that's a really big, complicated topic that you know we we talk a little bit about in the book. It's something I've written about because I, I have a big interest in empires as a form of political organization, and I think the easiest way to answer that is to say that uh, American. The, we can think about there being an American system during the Cold War, you know, sort of a security, political, economic system. And it was highly varied in terms of what kinds of relationships we find sure. within it, yeah. not just geographically, but over time. Um, one of the things that I thought was kind of ironic was that in my field, we had this big rediscovery of empire in the 2000s. And we had that for pretty obvious reasons, which was the 9-11 attacks and then the U.S. interventions and you know, invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq. And when you occupy a country and you run it or you run it with some local collaborators, that looks pretty imperial. And so we had this big American empire discussion. But if you actually wanted to look at the period of time when the United States was mo most imperial, it was probably the early Cold War and then maybe in the early 70s in Latin America and elsewhere, uh, you can do things like like track the history of American basing agreements in Germany and Japan, and they start out being really imperial relationships. But over time, they get renegotiated so that they're more in terms of sovereign equality. So I think that there's American system, and just like the the John John Darwin, who's a prominent historian of the British Empire, has a book that begins, I think correctly pointing out that there's no such thing as the British Empire. There's a British system, which involved protectorates and involved actual annexed territory. It involved all sorts of things. And that's, I think, more or less the kind of way we ought to think about U.S. foreign relations. Right. Um, now, what I mean by that, though, is that, that there wasn't a lot of need to lock down countries that way in the 90s because they didn't have exit options. So exit option basically means having an alternative provider. Yeah, of they these didn't kids. have somebody else they could go to. Yeah. Uh, and there were there were some, right? Yeah. I mean, Saudi Arabia is providing some of these kinds of goods. Uh, you do get the Bolivarist movement and a time when Hugo Chavez in the 2000s is using his petrodollars to 
uh, how you know provide kind of exits from IMF conditionality for some of the you know some other some of the regimes in the region, but you never really have anything uh, to scale uh, and anything that's really as good or consistent in terms of the quality of the aid delivered, um, or you don't have that until uh, China really starts to become wealthy enough to start throwing its weight around in the uh, world scene. And I mean, you have multiple states and, and entities that can provide that, but the key thing is they're all basically allies and basically on the same page. They're all liberal democracies. They all have similar priorities. Yeah. Does this also extend then to the, um, the the multilateral system? So the different UN agencies, the World Bank, the IMF, and what they're doing. So it's one thing is the aid, for example, that you talk about and the conditionality, but it, there's also the rules mm-hmm. that are, um, you know, the the UN Charter and then all international agreements that have been been pushed during this period. That is also part of the the provision of goods in your conception, correct? Well, I mean, you can talk about it that way. I, I don't think that, you know, our argument isn't just about goods provision. I mean, you can, but you can use goods provision as a kind of analogy. Let me say two things, right? First of all, I think part of what you're getting at is that where I would, where the book heads is to say that primarily what we're looking at is a is competition that's either over the terms of international order mm-hmm. or it's competition that is playing out via institutions and arrangements that are part of international order, or it's competition that involves setting up alternative international ordering, international governance arrangements. So, you know. So examples would be the, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the BRICS. The uh, AAIB, the the New Development Bank, which is the BRICS Bank. um, All those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's been the creation of entire parallel infrastructure uh, mostly around China, uh, of sort of um, like an alternative set of ordering institutions, which in many respects look a lot like the kind of things that the United States and Western democracies do. But there are some important differences, including the fact that they don't tend to have human rights provisions built into them. And, and if anything, uh, or institutions like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization are kind of explicitly uh, you know, uh, convivial for authoritarianism. You know, right. explicitly set right. up as a kind of you can get all the goods you would get with the United States, counterterrorism cooperation, border security, but you don't have to have those pesky Western NGOs running around telling you not to oppress people. Mm. Um, so so mm. one question is, does this explain, so it does explain, I think, well, what's going on now. Mm. Um, but the explanation for let's say, Chinese behavior as such. So the rise of China mm-hmm. is a slightly separate issue, no? Mm-hmm. So the explanation, so the rise of China, so it becomes more economically powerful, takes a different position internationally. But so f- for those that work with the concept of polarity, so there, there was this unipolar moment with the US uh, mm-hmm. uh, on top. Now there's more of a you know bipolar with China and the US. And then you can discuss whether there's a third with the EU and so on. Mm-hmm. But the explanation for how many big actors or great powers there are is if I understand it correctly, separate from the explanation of the dynamics that are ongoing now? A couple of things there. Um, the first is that, so the way that we use polarity, as you're alluding to in international relations right now, which isn't always the case, actually, when polarity is first introduced as a term 
in the 40s and 50s. They start talking about bipolarity. They're actually talking about something more like polarization, mm-hmm. the idea that the that the international system is converging around two centers and that are separated from one another, right? So like domestic political polarization. Uh, it, uh, it, but it gradually morphs to the point where people don't use it that way anymore. They, they just mean the number of great powers. So unipolarity, one great power, bipolarity, two great powers, multipolarity, three or more. Sometimes you have tripolarity, which is just three. Uh, and uh, the wager in uh, specific area of the field, primarily people who we call realists, uh, is that you can tell a lot about the way a system works by looking at the number of great powers in it. So there are two kind of points about that. One is that I think that it's probably accurate to think about the number of great powers as a shorthand for the number of Power, number of states or coalitions of states that are capable of supplying uh, a wide range of goods and bads for others. Right, for yeah. others, and yeah. so polarity. So, so great powers are great powers. Generally, the idea is that great powers don't really only the only thing that really matters to great powers in terms of their fundamental security is the dispositions of other great powers because they're the only ones who can bring those capabilities to the table. So unipolarity, when we talk about it in a security term, is, is actually identical with the concept that there's only one state that can provide credible security guarantees because there are other great powers. And so, you know, yeah, you can get a security guarantee, you can you know get a security guarantee from Kenya, but at the end of the day, that's not that valuable if the United States isn't interested in you know, in, in at least ignoring you. Um, so this, but the other thing is that, you know, frankly, we spent my, you know, the field has spent decades quantitatively and qualitatively trying to figure out basic questions like are bipolar systems more war prone than multipolar systems? And we just don't have conclusive answers to any of that. It's not clear to me that other than a useful description, we actually know that much about what it means to talk about you know, whether, say, a system with two great powers behaves in fundamentally different ways than three bigger powers, we just don't have good mm-hmm. answers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never probably will. <laughs> but my understanding is that in your book, you, so independently of debates about polarity and so on, you offer um, a framework of analysis that allows you to say something about, well, wh- what are the strategies right. that are being used by different great powers? And how does that affect basically alliance patterns um, and what is going on today? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's, yes, I think you're right. Um, And part of it is that I think that those debates are primarily about kind of the end state. And we're much more interested in the politics of the process that gets, that happens when power is shifting. Uh, Another issue with polarity uh, there are two other issues of polarity that I, I do want to mention. One is that polarity is a count of the number of great powers, but the unipolar system in the 1990s looks really different than uh, the uh, unipolar-ish system of the of 45-46, right? 45-46, the United States, by some estimates, uh, 46 to 47, 50, 40 to 50 percent of all economic output in the world at the end of World War II is happening in the United States. Uh, it's about 23% or something in, in the 1990s. So what's interesting is that in the 1990s, after the Soviet Union collapses, 
the U.S. has no pure competitors, so it, there's a sole superpower, if you will, even more so than there was at the end of World War II, when the Soviet military was quite formidable in all over Europe. But the U.S. control, the, the concentration of power in the hands of the United States was much is much smaller in the 1990s. And so one of the things that we tend to, that there are people who work on this, but we tend to focus on polarity rather than, say, how diffuse is power. Mm -hmm. So you can have one great power under conditions when there are a lot of second-tier powers, or you can have one great power when there's like nobody else, and we're only talking about very weak states compared to it. Um, and uh, the the unipolar, the so-called unipolar system, unipolar moment of the 90s, looks more like the former. There's actually a lot of power in the system that isn't in U.S. hands. But it's they just are very allied with the U.S. Either That's allied the with the United States yes. or it's diffuse, right? Right. Um, the second thing is that a, a big thing that I always want to drive home out of the book, even though it's not a big part of it, but I think might be of interest to your audience, is I think it's – Alex and I both think it's wrong it, – it's fundamentally misleading to talk about the 1990s as a unipolar system. Uh, it really is a cartel of great powers uh, where the other great powers are Japan, depending on how you look at it, EU, Germany, you know, the the – all of the other big industrialized economies that are U.S. allies, uh, and that's certainly the case economically, right? Uh, if you know, if you look at GDP, other types of things, it's very clear that the EU is toe to toe with the United States, uh, even more so than it's actually the trends are in the opposite direction. Uh, that is, the EU is weakening relative to the United States. But, um, but secondly, uh, not only that, but the reason why the United States has no military peer competitors is because all of those states are allies who are not particularly worried about the United States. And so they don't bother to build up their militaries and they won't even spend 2% of their GDP. Um, and so in a sense, the United States has that status because of its alliances. Uh, so the unipolarity is, a, is an agreed upon arrangement so, in some respects. So let's unpack that a little bit more because is the implication of that, that the, your, you know, Again, independently of polarity, but uh, China, for example. Mm -hmm. So you could, because when you measure, you know, great powers and the rise of China and everything, and it's very, very important. Um, but then, according to your argument, it would the 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 real power of China would depend a lot on how many friends they have, basically. So the strength of a great power is not necessarily with its military or economic power alone. You have to factor in how many allies or friends do they actually have. Yeah, I mean, we definitely subscribe to the idea that the United States built up through the Cold War and then carried over because of the way that the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, what we call infrastructural power sometimes. Yes. That is that the United States is sitting at the center of a variety of, of Center, not just it's not just centrally located. It's also sitting in a position of privilege and in, in often hierarchy hierarchical position. Uh, you know, really, the many of the fundamental economic and security arrangements that order global politics today. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that the United States derives a tremendous amount of uh, leverage and power from that. I'm not alone. Uh, Carla Norloff wrote a book uh, in maybe 10 plus years ago uh, arguing that 
the reason the whole reason the United States was able to maintain dollar hegemony after the collapse of the Bread and Wood system in the early 70s, after the US goes off the gold standard, is because they essentially leverage the provision of security goods and other things into getting other states to kind of agree to maintain, you know, to that arrangement uh, or to making sure that the dollar remain dominant. Uh, so the United States, uh, yeah, has an enormous amount of, of power and influence that way, although it's an interesting kind of power and influence because it is uh, not just, it's sort of, in a sense, it, it's aggregatory, right? It, it's jointly produced with other states. So it's not, that kind of influence doesn't simply mean the U.S. is running roughshod over its major power allies. It means that they're, there's a somewhat quasi, at least quasi-consensual arrangement there. Right. Um, but what's the implication of that reading for our understanding of China today? So, well, I mean, I think that the most important thing right now is uh, has to do with the debates in U.S. foreign policy, where you have some people who are China hawks who are more aligned with the Trump movement, uh, who think that we should be ripping up a lot of that infrastructure to focus on China. And to me, that is basically shooting ourselves in the foot. It's divesting the U.S. of a lot of the source of its power and influence. Uh, I think that it also uh, is relevant in the sense that one of the things we point out is that, I mean, we don't think this would ever happen literally, but a lot of Chinese influence right now and a lot of things you read about in the headlines about, you know, coercing other states, for example, into not saying, not implying that Taiwan is independent or that Hong Kong has been cracked down upon or that things are really bad for the Uyghurs. Um, a lot of their ability to do that, like for the, U similarly, where a lot of U.S. power comes from is the ability to say, if you don't toe the line, you can't sell or buy in our market. Uh, so they use their, their market power uh, coercively. So does the U.S. That's sanctions, <laughs> right? Yes. Um, and what I think is interesting is that despite the relative decline of both the US and the EU, and particularly the, the more pronounced relative decline of the, of the European bloc, um, if you, it's still the second or third largest consumer economy in the world. And if you actually if you would have regulatory harmonization on certain issues, whether it be climate or whether it be human rights between the US and the EU, that's a much, much larger market than China's. And that's where it becomes significant that China, although it has you know, more friends, I think, than people who say, oh, it has no friends right. recognize. Mm -hmm. But China doesn't do formal alliances, for example. China's relations are much more, they're much less institutionalized. Uh, they're often much less durable. Uh, they don't have the kind of almost... I mean, it's almost like the if you think about the U.S. and Europe and maybe Japan, it's almost like you have a federation in North America, two federations in North America, Canada and the United States. You have a confederation in Europe, which is the European Union, and then they're kind of you kind of have a, a kind of overarching, a kind of informal, almost confederative relationship involving the flow of peoples and a lot of joint governance through mechanisms like G7, NATO, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and that kind of almost uh, political community is something that China doesn't have anything close to outside of its borders. And But is, mm -hmm. do you read the China's Belt and Road Initiative and the, these other initiatives that they have um, as an effort to try to do the same? No, and China's also been spending a lot on building up its diplomatic capabilities. Uh, you know, uh, essentially, while the U.S. has been 
mucking around and causing people to quit the State Department, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in divesting itself of its tremendous diplomatic capital and accumulated, you know, China's been on a buying spree when it comes to that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, it, it, these are, uh, you know, the Better World Initiative is, I'm not, uh, you know, an expert expert on it. And it's complicated because to some degree, it's just kind of branding for a whole bunch of Chinese things that China's doing anyway, some of which predate the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's it's almost a way of talking about, yeah, it's like a marketing campaign, but certainly the, the things that China is doing with it are trying to forge these relationships, economic integration uh, on, on, on terms that are at least convivial, more convivial to China than say, you know, something like arrangement like the EU would be. Uh, and they're certainly using that to leverage support for China, uh, for example, on human rights votes within the United Nations, sure. uh, and also leveraging it to support get support for China and against and say to get states to f- make the final switch away from Taiwan in terms of what they recognize as being China. You know, it's doing all those things. You can look at maps of voting behavior, and they they're pretty consistent with like BRI penetration. You know, states that might have voted differently 25 years ago on an, yeah. on a UN resolution of interest to China. Mm. Uh, uh, so, so there, there is this other aspect to this, which I think is interesting. So w- you see a lot of uh, reports coming out of the U.S. Uh, that describes the Belt and Road Initiative as a, an effort of basically debt diplomacy, mm-hmm. right? So may, maybe that's the case, maybe not, but it's also strategic communication. So there is now a, a different layer of the competition that concerns how to describe what the opponent basically is trying to do. Um, so there is that mm. you know effort to try to market what yourself is doing and to undermine what the opponent is trying to do and to describe it in a way that uh, prevents people from buying into it. Yeah, and there's nothing new. Yeah, that's 100% right. And there's nothing new about that. I mean, you can go back to the Cold War, you can go back to the interwar period, you can go back to before World War One and some of the economic competition that's playing out between the European powers, same stuff. Um, there's some variation in how much peacetime propaganda you get, but mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah, pretty much, you know, this is what we should be used to. I think the fact that and it was it's actually been going on for the last you know, much longer, I think, than people have been paying attention to it. Uh so I think that it's mostly a surprise to people in North America and Europe who maybe just weren't paying attention because they weren't thinking about uh, competition as a thing or they weren't thinking about, uh, you know, they were sort of thinking that, yeah, they just weren't really th- weren't really paying attention, but that's been happening for a while. Um, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, I think that I, I want to be clear that the, the book itself is actually interested in, in kind of a bunch of different processes that are happening. Uh, so the big one is just straight up great power competition. Uh, and a lot of that plays out through this mechanism of goods provision or the joint production of security with other states, to use the, the economistic term for things like alliances. Uh, and a lot of that's playing out that way in terms of you know China's not going to war with the United States or fighting proxy wars with the United States. China instead is offering big packages of economic development in exchange for support. And the U.S. is sometimes competing and sometimes not competing with that. But you have essentially, um, uh, we tell a story uh, about why it is that that China and Russia, who were more comfortable, I think, with 
liberal international order, as the term goes, which is a very fraught term, uh, in the early 2000s are not very comfortable with it right now. Yep. And so are really actively trying to mold international order. And some of that story is just having the capability to do that. Some of it is, has to do with um, the way that order played out in their view in the, in the over the last 20 years or so. Um, so we have a chapter on exit from above, which is about great power competition and, and focuses on Russia and China. Uh, we have then the other the next chapter is on exit from below, and it's primarily about the way in which weaker states are able to exploit now a more competitive marketplace yeah. to increase their leverage and to shape international order in ways which are they view as more favorable, um, which might be a good thing. I mean, I'm not saying it's bad or good; no. it just is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third uh, part of the sort of major argument of the book is what we call exit from within, and that's focused on how it's not just Power transitions, we all know, generate what we call revisionist sentiment, yep. right? You know, that's what I mean by China and Russia wanting to change things about international order. We also have figured out, I think by now, that it also makes incumbent powers, that is countries like the United States, uneasy about international order and wanting to change it because they start looking around and this is, even if they set up the order, it's the order that right. is producing success for others and this yep. is, you know, Trumpism is a kind of that's part yep. a big part of the argument, yep. but also you're seeing within in, in in within that context, you're seeing a lot of uh, political movements in 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 fact ascendant really on the offensive political movements in the core of the Western liberal democratic system that if you really look at them they are you know they have domestic concerns certainly, uh, but. Fundamentally, they're they're contesting liberal order, and they're saying we don't want this anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so we focus particularly on the the far right in in that chapter because we were writing it right in twenty. We were writing it in the after Trump's election, so we spent a lot of time talking about Russian electoral meddling and particularly Russian the way that Russia was very interested in trying to insert itself as a broker among different far right movements. Uh, had sort of figured out that it's cultural conservatism as a soft power resource. Right. Um, so, uh, and I, I do want to stress that, you know, we, that while the dynamics of what happens in power transitions with changes in the marketplace for aid and security and things like that, you know, that's a kind of time-honored story that um, in the sense that it, something like it happens whenever you have power transitions, uh, but uh, really, the if you want, if you're somebody who sits around fretting about liberal order, the real threat you want to be fretting about is from within. Is from within, and yep. it's primarily that the United States, which is the anchor of this order, m may be about to reelect a president that doesn't believe in it. Now, if you don't believe in it, that's great, <laughs> you know. But if you you do think that this is, if you're American, for example, and you think this is not only a, a pretty good deal, but that it's really served U.S. interests in a lot of ways. Uh, then, of course, you'd be quite worried. Well, on that happy note, thanks so much, Dan Exon, for enlightening us. You've just heard an episode of The World Stage from Nupi. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your preferred podcast app. And if you understand Norwegian, I urge you to also check out our other podcast, Utenriks Hospitale. Thank you and goodbye.